Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we discuss the issues impacting food, fuel, fiber, farming, the industry that we love so much. Oh man, do we have a good guest today. I just talked to him offline for like 20 minutes and that's uncommon because I don't really like talking to people, especially if I'm not being paid. You guys are going to love this. He's Jason Lusk, professor Yes, I mean a professor. I don't even think he's so not a professor, you're going to be amazed. I don't even think he owns a clip-on tie. That's how cool this <laughs> dude is. He's the head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. That's my alma mater. He is also an author and a professional speaker like me. He goes around North America and talks at different events. In fact, we've shared some past clients. I didn't know that until I dug into this guy. So we're going to talk about a lot of things from the food police to food policy to the future of agriculture with a guy that knows a lot about it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business of Agriculture, the wonderful podcast, and welcome our guest, Jason Lusk. Hi, Damien. Thanks for having me on. It's a privilege to be on. It's also a privilege to, uh, to be on with an alumni of our department. So that's uh, always good to see somebody that's graduated from here being so successful. They even wrote me, well, being so successful, listen to that. What This guy knows how to butter up the host also. They did an article about me once in the Purdue Alumni Magazine, and that was in my political comedy days. Uh, that was kind of cool. I felt like I was maybe, you know, maybe something. Uh, and then I told him, in case you happen to be listening to this and you happen to go or have been to West Lafayette, Indiana, which is where Purdue University is, dear listeners, Harry's Chocolate Shop is the traditional old tavern that's been there forever. You know, every college town has one. Eskimo Joe's in uh, Stillwater or, uh, you know, the place in uh, Happy Valley, whatever the place is. <sighs> Harry's Chocolate Shop, where I was a bartender, waiter, doorman in the late early 90s, has a picture of me dressed up as Bill Clinton hanging on the wall right when you walk in, turn to the left. I told Jason Lusk that, so if he gets uh, gets to the chocolate shop. But enough about Purdue, let's talk about this great guest that we have. We're gonna cover issues in the food debate. We're gonna talk about the book that he put out called The Food Police. So let's get right into it. Jason Lusk, as I already said, is the head of the Agricultural Economics Department. He's a Texan and he, uh, he's not your average professor. Give us a little bit of background on you, please. Sure. I grew up in a, a very small town in West Texas. And, and when I say small, I mean really small. There were about 12 or 15 people in my graduating class and um, pretty much everybody, my parents were school teachers and my dad was ultimately a school administrator, but everybody else I grew up around worked on farms. And so I spent my childhood youth mainly hoeing cotton weeds, um, also moving a little bit of livestock for 4-H and FFA competitions. And um, anyway, that, that's a good motivation to get a degree from college. So <laughs> I did, got an undergrad degree in food science worked in a couple of food processing plants uh, in internships, but really realized um, that I wanted to do something a little different, took a class over in economics, agricultural economics, and really fell in love with it. So I um, uh, went to grad school at Kansas State, got a PhD in economics, and, and spent probably the first 15 years of my career doing traditional economic research, mainly related to consumer demand issues, like what are people willing to pay? How do we get better answers from people in terms of um, projecting what they'll actually do? in a grocery store. Um, but a lot of the topics I was focusing on were sort of these controversial ag topics, uh, a lot really related to food and ag technologies. And, and, you know, part of the academic research was focusing on the policy side, but I really realized probably five or six years ago that, that there was just really needed to be a lot 
there was a lot of room for better public debate about these topics and better information on these topics. And so I started spending more time uh, trying to engage the public a little bit on these topics. And that's probably how I wound up talking to you. Well, I appreciate you talking to me and my listeners appreciate you talking to me. I was going to be an agronomist. I was the ninth best soil judger in the 1987 land pasture and range analysis competition held in Oklahoma. And I said, man, I'm going to be an agronomist. I like this. I'm into the dirt. And then I went to Purdue and I found out how much science they made you take. And man, oh man, I said, how about agricultural economics? <laughs> uh, Jason Lusk, obviously my guest here, he wrote a book called The Food Police a well-fed manifesto about the politics of your plate. He has another book out called Unnaturally Delicious, How Science and Technology Are Serving Up Superfoods to Save the World. We're going to talk about the first book, The Food Police, a well-fed manifesto about the politics of your plate. You are on this show. You listen to me. You know that one of my things I do in my presentations is talk about the food police. I reference Michelle Obama, never elected to any higher office in her life, yet she single-handedly changed the components of the school lunch program. You've heard me talk about uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York City, who decided people are fat and it's the fault of too big a soda pops. Then that went to court, whether you can have more than 16 ounces of soda, whether you can, whether you can't. Tell us about the super, I'm sorry, about the food police, Mr. Jason, Professor Jason Lusk. Yeah, so I, th I think, um, you know, I sort of think about the food police as the backseat drivers when it comes to food, <laughs> you know, kind of a group of people who sort of think they know better about how we should all be eating. And you know, it's okay. We all seek out advice from counselors and, and sometimes dietitians when we're, we want to lose weight or we want food advice. But I think, you know, really where it, it piqued my interest and kind of what motivated me to get into these debates was really when it moved more into the public policy realm. And I felt like even on the academic side of things that the that there wasn't, there's was a lot of wishful thinking when it came to, to uh, estimating the potential impacts of these policies. And, and so people focused a lot on the benefits, but weren't really willing to look at the costs and the trade-offs of a lot of these policies. Um, and so that, that's really what the book is about, is going through a whole host of technologies and trying to bring a little evidence to the table and also peel back some of the layers of what are some of the philosophies underlying these sort of, this sort of thinking about, um, food that, that somehow, you know, uh, maybe I know better than you do about food and, um, and peel back some of that philosophy so we can understand the debate a little bit better. It comes down to control. And what I, you know, I, I point out in my talks, Jason, that while organized religion is actually declining in North America, uh, you know, the pew at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Parish where my mom sat is not occupied. She's, she's no longer with us. And I'm not being mean and yet I'm not starting any religious warrior. I make the point that while organized religion might be declining, religion of movement, religion of cause is actually growing. Because we're an affluent society, we have these, uh, these time and energy and monies available to us that we can devote to causes. And it seems as though food is always one of those deals, whether you want to ban meat because you think cow farts are causing uh, ozone destruction, or whether you think that there's people that are fat because of soda pop, food and agriculture is always right there in the, in the crosshairs of the religiousness of causes. Do you agree? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of similarities. It's not a perfect parallel, but I think, you know, people, regardless of religion per se, people want they want to find meaning in life and people are going to search for that meaning in different areas. And certainly food and environment is an area where a lot of folks have, have sought and found meaning to express themselves and to think about, you know, sort of 
higher purposes in life. And I think some of the, the, the sort of themes that you see in religion often carry through in all these debates about food and ag, these sort of ideas about sin and redemption um, and that, you know, that play out in religion. You can see in a lot of these food discussions as well that, uh, in it, and again, it kind of gets back to this policy side of it, but I think the, the idea that you can make a set of food choices that's right for you given your budget and your preferences and you're okay doing that, uh, that and it may be different than mine. Um, you know, that kind of view about food thinking, that's sort of where it runs in this more religious sort of mindset, perhaps that, we, okay, there's a set of norms that we should all follow, the set of dictates from on high, if you will, that everybody should follow regardless of their income or life circumstances. And so I guess in some ways, I've well, in a lot of ways, I've pushed back on that idea, that sort of paternalism, if you will, that that everybody should be making the same set of food choices because we all have we all have different incomes, we have different preferences, desires, and wants in life. Well, yeah, the, the wheat the wheat grower listening to this right now wants if there's going to be a cause, they want the cause to be all about you know bread for the masses, bread for the masses. We should all you know we should all break bread together. And then the dairy farmer that's listening to this, uh, the milk processor says, hey, you know what? Smile and say cheese. So I mean, there's always. That agriculture always has a vested interest by commodity group or by niche. The thing is, the consumer base, uh, the consumer base that we have sometimes is our biggest problem because our consumer base believes that they have uh, the best answer and these cause groups go to that. When Michelle Obama changed the school lunch program, I became very vocally against it. The science was dead set against what she said. She said that whole milk and 2% milk is why kids are fat. Science proves that's not right. Fat in milk satiates, it fills you up, it does not make you obese. Empty carbohydrates, so we say, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sucrose, glucose, fructose, et cetera, et cetera, those tend to be more of the demon. What's your thought? Does a school lunch thing stay a hot potato? I, I think it certainly will. I'm going to back up just a second, maybe, and say, um, you know, I think consumers have every right to ask for what they want out of the food system. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about our market economy is, is it's a vibrant entrepreneurial place. Um, I think the challenge comes in when people want things that they're not willing to pay for and they use a political process to force sort of, you know, one way to think about it is an unfunded mandate um, asking producers to adopt production practices that they've shown in their, in their behavior in the grocery store, they're not willing to pay for. And then, so, you know, I think that carries over to something like a school lunch program, because this is not a voluntary market interaction. This is basically a federal dictate of, of what you're going to be having schools. And I think, you know, probably my biggest beef with that policy was that it just was not based on good research or evidence that the, the policies that were undertaken were going to have much impact. And, um, and indeed one of the, unintended consequences we saw that some of those food policies is that we we saw some increases in food waste so just because you require schools to put something on a plate doesn't mean kids are going to eat it and there were several academic papers that came out shortly thereafter measuring amounts of food waste so you know I, you know really i'm arguing for better science here in in adjudicating um or thinking about federal policies we all want our kids to be healthy but uh, we want them to be healthy in a cost-effective way and schools have limited budgets. I mentioned my dad was a school administrator. And, um, you know, when I asked him about the school lunch program, he, the main thing he complains about is the bureaucracy involved and, um, and, and how much work it is just to make sure you're complying with federal guidelines. And all that time and effort is things that could have gone into making sure kids are learning more reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, rather than trying to figure out, you know, um, you know whether we've, we follow the dictates of, the, of these fairly complicated school lunch programs. So, 
yeah, I, I'm not against thinking about how we can improve our children's diets, but I think we want to good, use good science um, and be smart about how we're spending our money and doing that. One of my problems with the school lunch program, Jason, is I believe it makes uh, it makes soliciting prostitutes out of all of us in agriculture. And you're saying, oh my goodness, he's getting a little salacious. Yes, I am. Here's what happens with the school lunch program. We say, oh, there's all this demand. So we've got to send our lobbyists to Washington, D.C. to make sure that we are doing the right handshaking and pat patting the right backs and buying the right, uh, you know, martinis to make sure that tomato sauce is now qualifying as a vegetable. And then the potato people send their folks, and the milk people send their folks, and the broccoli people, and, it, and everybody says, well, that's demand. I say it's bastardized demand, and it makes us no better than what we complain about Washington, D.C. in general. Yeah, that, you know, one way to think about those, all those resources that go into lobbying are basically a, a waste it, from society's perspective, because if I get tomato sauce on the school lunch menu, it means something else isn't going to be there. So, you know, those sort of lobbying activities are often, you know, what we would call a zero sum game. Uh, my benefit is exactly your loss. Um, and so, uh, you know, in general, I think we want to think about discouraging those kinds of activities or, or not setting up systems that are going to encourage them uh, because they don't really do society any benefit. Um, and that's one of the things that's great about our market economy is hopefully, you know, when I'm competing, uh, in a marketplace, offer something to get your business. I need to offer you something better um, uh, that, that brings you better, more pleasure, uh, more enjoyment, provides a benefit for you. So that's a win-win because you get to sell something, I get something better. Hopefully, a price I'm willing to pay and you're willing to accept. Jason clearly forgot that he's talking to another agricultural economics guy. He, I think we call that utility. You didn't have to give all the yes. Okay. I have said forever that we should actually not even have a dietary nutrition guideline. If you listen to my show, folks, you know what, I'll give you the background. We began, the United States began the dietary nutrition guidelines in 1980 under President Reagan. It is very political. Every five years, the president or the administration in charge picks the scientists, the dietitians, the nutritionists that are going to tell America what to eat. We've been doing this since 1980. To tell you how successful this is at making Americans healthier, in 1980, the obesity rate was 12%. We've worked our way up to 37%. Yes, when the government that's fat and bloated told Americans what to eat, Americans became fat and bloated. Should there be a dietary nutrition guidelines from the government's standpoint at all, Jason? Uh, I don't know that I go so far as, you know, saying we ought to get rid of that, but I, I certainly think the sort of influence and stature they have um, is overblown. Um, you know, economics is hard, but nutrition science is even harder. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot more certainty um, that's expressed in those guidelines than we actually have scientific knowledge to support. And I think that's, that's probably my primary beef uh, with with the guidelines is that what you know this the most recent dietary guidelines after you know 20 30 years of telling us that cholesterol was going to kill us now eggs are no longer an ingredient of concern so it's that kind of stuff you know the the evidence that you know the the basis of the recommendations are are not based often in very good science and it's not the scientist's fault it's just really hard it's very expensive to do well this. you say it's not the scientist's fault i would quibble that it's become a politics of science that makes it not even very scientific and in the most recent 2015 dietary nutrition guidelines you said you have a beef with it here's my beef with it they said that for the first time ever 
Americans should eat less meat. It had nothing to do with the nutritional aspect of it. it, had nothing to do with health, it had to do with environmentalism. They said that eating meat is bad for the environment. So this again becomes a political agenda versus truly advising on health. So if you're my patient, I'm your doctor, you come to me and I say, here's what you need to do. You need to stop running sprints, it's bad for you. Start walking stairs and do 20 push-ups after you're done with it, and then also eat this. I'm looking at you as how I can make you healthier. What if I say, hey, you know what? I'm not really concerned about your knees, your joints, or whether you're strong or not, but I know this. I really believe that eating meat is bad for the environment, so don't do that. Did I help you? No, I pushed my agenda. That's my concern and why I say there should not even be a dietary nutrition guideline because it is politics, not nutrition. Well, I certainly think adding the sort of sustainability measures, as they called it, in with the dietary guidelines, it's conflating two different things. And I, th I think one way that I look at it is, you know, science at its best can tell you maybe what is, you know, what, what is the relationship between, I don't know, salt intake and, 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 heart, and blood pressure, but it can't tell you what to do. You know, there's issues of values and trade-offs between say environment or health. Those, those are human um, subjective individual decisions that are not really actually scientific questions. And, um, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty liberta libertarian in my political leanings. Um, but, you know, to the extent that the government has a role in, in things like institutions, you know, uh, I think providing information is some of the least objectionable kinds of roles. But, but again, I think when that information is couched in these terms that it's casting science as a value judgment, I think that is, can be a bit problematic, although I'm not necessarily opposed to thinking about how we can provide people information, assuming we could find a way to do it in an objective uh, Talking about Jason Lusk, Agricultural Economics Department Head at Purdue University, author of The Food Police, a well-fed manifesto about the politics of your plate, here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. We are going to move on now. The way I found out about Jason, believe it or not, I don't give money to Purdue. I don't really keep up with what happens back there. I kind of look at it as, hey, I gave you all the money I had to give when I had none to give. So you know what? You're on your own, kids. My tax dollars support it because I own two farms in Indiana. You're going to have to deal with that. I'm not being mean. I'm being honest. But I found out about Jason Lusk, not because I uh, was uh, kept in the loop from the, my alma mater. I found, about, I found out about Jason Lusk because I get a newsletter in the email from a somewhat left-leaning organization called Food Tank. Food Tank is one of these things, dear listeners, where they, shall we say, come up with ideas that sound really good about uh, that, that people in Africa, they don't use 2,4-D to spray weeds and they don't have any... Uh, don't have any chemical-based fertilizers. They just go out and, you know, use a hoe and fling some cow dung out there. And they think that's really neat, this food tank organization. I say, fantastic. Have you also noticed that they're starving? So I get food tanks so I can keep up with what, shall we say, the San Francisco crowd thinks about food and agriculture. Turns out they interviewed Jason Lusk, today's guest, and I read his brilliant answers and I liked it. I'll give you an example. <laughs> Their question was, the U.S. food system currently fails to satisfy the basic needs of some consumers. What interventions do you think are mostly efficiently correcting this deficit and who is driving them? And, you know, a lot of people would have said, gosh, I'm the guest. I don't want to refute that. I don't want to stand up to these people in the media. Jason Law said, I'm not sure I agree with the premise of the question. I knew right then this was a professor I loved. <laughs> Then he said, our food system feeds more people more affordably with more variety and more, nutritious, more nutritiously than has any other food system in human history. Now, that's why I decided I wanted to have Jason Lusk on this 
podcast. Jason, tell me about your interview with Food Tank. Yeah, well, well, first, let me say we'd be very happy to accept your donations. I'm sure those uh, classes in comedy that you took here in college are, are really what propelled you in your in your career. I use everything I've learned from Purdue University, from AggieCon 101 with uh, Dr. Larry Bull in the basement of Cranert Building to the sales classes from Professor Downey, who I still see once in a while on the circuit. I have not a bad thing to say about my education at Purdue. I just decided, you know what? I don't need to give you any money. I gave you all the money I had when I didn't have any. Yeah, understood. Well, we, um, you know, I think, you know, Food Take is an interesting organization. I've engaged a little bit with their founder and CEO. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I disagree with a, probably a lot of their positions in terms of the, the effectiveness or, or how we should think about addressing our, our, our big future food problems. But, you know, at the same time, they, they have some influence and particularly influence over, I think, sort of the future generation that is likely to affect food and farm policy. So I, th I think it is important to engage with them. And I, I think I probably, probably from my first book, The Food Police, to the second one, tried to be a little more productive and try and engaging a little bit with some of these groups. Um, and uh, yeah, well, but you know, I think- Jason, the groups outnumber us. I mean, that's why I keep up with it. I feel like when I'm hired to do a speaking engagement for my agricultural clientele, I want to bring them a book report, if you will, the Cliff's Notes, if you're old, you remember what Cliff's Notes are, of everything that I'm seeing. And my people you know, in Kansas and my people in Pacific Northwest, they don't see all of this. So I try and bring them a sliver of everything. And that's what you're talking about. The food tank, is supposed to, they call themselves the thought tank, the think tank for food. Some of their stuff is well-intentioned. And you say, oh, well, why be mad at them for well-intentioned? Well, well-intentioned lobbying becomes well-intentioned policy, which becomes asinine, backward, wrong-minded, and sometimes detrimental to the actual consumer. And that's where I can, I, I guess I have a problem with some of their initiatives. Well, I, I think, I think they're, they do do some good things, that, but yeah, I think a lot of this, the stuff I see on their website is, is sort of uncritical promotion of, you know, unproductive farming practices <laughs> to, for, for lack of a better description. Um, but I think, you know, one, you know, one uh, thing that's interesting, I think in some of those circles is they, they often aren't challenged very often, probably in the way that I did in that Q and a there, um, because really in a, in one way to think about it is sort of the zeitgeist is on their side. You know, the, 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 the good intentions have been enough to garner a lot of very, um, fawning praise in the media and the best-selling books and what have you so that and the donations and yes. the, let's not forget that their their uh shall we say altruistic statements about how we should all be able to live in a world where we don't use fertilizer and we don't have to spray uh fungicide on plants they say oh and, and everybody says in san francisco and in, in brooklyn they say yes yes i agree we should never have to spray fungicide and food tank thinks that also i'm going to give them a thousand dollar donation and you and i both out here that have actually produced a calorie of food in our life say that's a neat idea it's also completely unrealistic and impossible that's my concern about this group go ahead yeah no i i um uh, well, I, I don't, I don't know that I have more to add on there except to say that I, th I think, you know, they, they, uh, you know, um, ha have the ear of the media. And so I think it's important to engage with them in a productive way. And, and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, back, back to your point, I think this is true of, of a lot of in NGOs, these non-government organizations that, 
you know, there does need to be a crisis to raise money. And, and that bad news sells, part of that is a, a feature of human reality that we're, we're gonna pay more attention to negative things and positive things. But at the same time, there's also the sort of incentive inherent in fundraising uh, and this this can happen for all kinds of groups, but that that where the incentive is to really overinflate the negative and, and the sort of scare story, and um, and to forget a lot of the positive benefits uh, that have come through our food system. So I, you know I think it's important to point those things out. I think it also suggests that we're going to you know somebody with my perspective and and your perspective is going to have a hard time capturing a lot of attention when you say, hey, things are a lot better than you think they are. That's just not nearly as compelling a story sometimes. Well, we, th things are amazingly good, and we that should be our number one thing. Rather than getting caught up in the fight that we, that we are ill-equipped to take on, frankly, because we don't have the public relations muscle, we don't have the emotion on our side, and we go at it with science and logic and economics, and the consumer doesn't get those things, what we should really go with is the basis that, as you said, and as I say, We've got a, a, an amazing food system with more abundance and variety at an affordable price than has ever happened, feeding more percentage of the human population than we've ever had before in the history of mankind. All right, I'm talking to Jason Lusk. He's the author of two books. He's a professor, the head of the Ag Econ Department at Purdue University. Because he's such an amazing guest, we're going to bring him back for a second podcast, which will be after this one. But I know you are on your drive. You're sitting there in your car, your truck, and you're saying, I can't give it a full 40 minutes. So you know what? I just gave it to you in 25, and we're going to let you come back for the next one. Jason, you'll join me again, right? Yes. For Fantastic.